Hello. Hey, Kai. Oh, Michael. I just finished uh, 10 hours of psychological warfare with myself. <laughs> Was that in the dark room? Yeah, making final prints in the dark room. You know, I, I did six different negatives today and um, just, I mean, I just put them in the wash right before you called. So I still have another good hour, but it's been like a long day, basically. It's, you know, <clears throat> you're always questioning and doubting yourself. I have a tendency to overprint sometimes. So, you know, going back and forth between, you know, one second or two seconds more burning in one area <laughs> or if the highlight's going to get too muddy or if it's now going to be too light. And anyways, yeah. Well, so that's what I'm up to. The past few times you've been in the darkroom, you, I've noticed you um, you're tweeting out or, or, or sending messages out that you you were making final prints. Are you are you gearing up for something or is this just something you you, you want to do just to see what they look like? Uh, no, I'm trying to I, I need a full set of all of 52 prints for uh, the book, um, about face picturing Tampa. And, um, it looks like everything's gearing up for that. So we need to make scans and get into production, get probably by January, need to have all the files ready. And, um, I going back through the prints I had made some, you know, some as long as five years ago, I just realized that some weren't good enough yet. So I needed to go back and, and make better prints, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm doing to make a final set of 52 that I can, that I'll, that I'll know are good for uh, going to production with. Right. Uh, yeah. We talked about the, uh, the about face project uh, back on your episode. Are you making your own scans for the book or are you sending those out? Well, we're, we're actually going to do an experiment. Um, we have access to one of the Hasselblad medium format digital cameras um, through Dennis Santella. You know, I think it's the um, it's not the latest one, but it's like two generations older than that. But it's you know amazing quality. And so we're going to do a, a test between that and scanning them on a flatbed Creo scanner. And uh, whichever works out better, since we're doing reductions from 11 by 14 prints down to about eight inches, I imagine that the Hasselblad should be fine as long as the lens is, you know, sharp and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, so it, it, it's like sort of going back to doing uh, good copy work. Yeah, exactly. I mean, why why go through the time of going through the scanner and then going and getting the dust back off the scans <laughs> and doing all of that if you can just set up and, you know crank through these with uh, a nice high-end digital camera absolutely so, yeah we'll see so we had a, a little bit of news with the show you know we broke 2,000 listens with uh, Tom Roma's episodes one and two amazing yeah that's incredible yeah it was really nice uh, and then uh, of course there was that great reception that uh, Tom had at Stephen Kasher Gallery, and that was packed. Yeah, you know what that really reminded me of uh, all these stories that I've been told from uh, Tom and other people about how the openings at MoMA used to be for photography shows, you know, in the 70s and 80s, where the room was full of photographers or people who were at least there to look at the work and that you'd run into everybody you knew. And, uh, you know, it was more than just, uh, you know, I know you've been to some of these, the more recent openings and at MoMA and they're yeah, they've got a DJ going. Can barely talk to anybody. It's uh, it's there's a lot of corporate people there from you know wherever that don't even go up and see the work. They're just there for an event at MoMA. It's a social it's, it's happening. It's kind of a VIP list. Yeah, yeah, it's a VIP event, and you know you you literally can't have a conversation anywhere near the drinks, which I think is a, a challenge. So this was felt like that like you're in a room full of people who are there to happy to be there happy to see the work you know you, you're having conversations about it and i thought it was just lovely it actually reminded me of 
Tom's Come Sunday reception at the Museum of Modern Art. I remember just being surrounded by people I'd either heard about through Tom or known over the years. Uh, it was it's kind of like a history of his life there. Yeah, boy, I wish I I wish I had been able to go to that. <laughs> that must have been amazing. Yeah, and the reception afterwards was pretty nice too. <laughs> yeah, no doubt, no doubt. <laughs> and your show just came down. Yes, it did, and uh, at a it was at Smith, and so not not a commercial space, so no print sales to talk about, but I. <laughs> But I did have all most of my expenses covered by doing an artist talk uh, for uh, Yola Monikoff's class at Smith and for Claudio Nolasco's class at Hampshire College. I also did uh, a talk. So that was nice. Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, and Claudio uh, just got that job, didn't he, over at Hampshire? Yeah, I just started this semester. So that was nice to, to be able to participate in that with him. Oh, that's great. Um, last thing I just thought of, cause I just finished reading this is when I read, uh, there's that book, the photographer's playbook that, uh, Jason Fulford and Gregory Halpern put together and published through Aperture mm-hmm. and, uh, Roma's in it and other people, but, uh, Emmett Gowan in there mentions in passing that there is a book that he used to give out to all of his students to read, but he doesn't name the book he just gives some hints about what it's about but he doesn't name the book and interesting yeah that kind of i mean it it piqued my interest so i i started doing a bunch of google sleuthing and i discovered that the book he's referring to is called science and human values by jacob bronowski b-r-o-n-o-w-s-k-i it's been republished by you know faber finds i think it first came out in the 1960 or no 1956 Anyways, I just finished reading it. It's a very short little book, but it talks mostly about this, or mostly about science, but also uh, referring to like the differences between the arts and the sciences and how they overlapped and this idea of scientists coming up with concepts and then trying to arrange facts around the concept to, to find out if it's true or not. You know, and the main, I guess, one difference being with artists, you're coming up with the concept or the idea, but the facts or the, the things you put together to go with the concept don't have to be true, you know, mm-hmm. but they, but they do back up this, this idea. So I, I recommend it. I mean, I, I would never have found it or read it without that Emmett Gowan uh, mentioning it in that book. No, it sounds really interesting. So, so we had a, a lovely conversation with Eileen Quinlan, who's uh, coming up on the show. Uh, she talks a, a bit about, you know, preparing for shows and, and having gallery representation, which I thought that was really interesting to hear, you know, what it's like to have that relationship. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, you know, a lot of people imagine that for themselves or maybe wonder about what that could be like for themselves. And so I thought that was an important an important aspect to talk about. Um, she and, and her husband, uh, Cheney Thompson, are they're one of the few, uh, certainly the few couples I know who are completely supporting themselves by the, the sale of their work. So it's definitely a model for to, to look at and, you know, right. contemplate. All right. Well, thanks for calling in. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on again. And um, look forward to hearing this uh, this episode with Eileen. Yeah, and you have to get back to the darkroom now. Yeah, exactly. Got to go <laughs> clean up. Well, at least it's for an exciting cause. Yeah, exactly. Right. All right. Have a good night. You too.
testing. So it's like this, like my chin is touching the, right? Oh, that close <laughs> yeah. like that? Yep. Whoa. That's good. That's so weird because I can't see your faces anymore. Yeah. It's just the that's eyes. That's the one thing, right. Yes, we all close our eyes, <laughs> start meditating. <laughs> That's right. That's probably good before you start one of these things. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to grab my notebook. Go ahead. Right. Just because I made a couple of notes. Forget Yeah, we thought we'd start off with a, like a bio question just to get you to like go over basic stuff of how you got started kind of thing. Yeah, I listen to yours. Yeah. So. And, then, uh, and then we'll... Start talking about exhibitions. Well, you know a lot of my history, so you can, yeah. you can but, prompt me if. But I the forget. world doesn't know. Yeah. No, no, I know. <laughs> I can remind me if I forget. Right. So we're here in the studio with Eileen Quinlan. Hello, Eileen. Hi. And I'm here with Guy McBride. Hello again. Hi. <laughs> so we're out in Brooklyn in a studio in a of this this old building that you were just telling me about. It's a hundred years old. Right. And you yeah. you and your husband own this building. We do. We actually moved to this neighborhood of Williamsburg in 1999 and we came here to to rent this building. We had seen it. We were living in Manhattan in a very small apartment and my husband had a studio in Queens and he was going back and forth, which was kind of far and it was too much money for us to rent two spaces. And we were both artists looking for a place to work. So we saw an ad for a garage in the back of the Village Voice and we came out here to look at this space and decided that if we were gonna take it, we needed to live here as well. But it's quite large, it's about 3,000 square feet. Mm. So we called a couple friends who were still living in Boston and said, it's time to move to New York, come nice. down here. <laughs> and uh, five of us lived here and I think we were paying maybe 250 or 300 a month to live in this building. Oh, that's great. But we had no real bathroom, so we had to mm. shower in a sink bottom <laughs> that we positioned yeah. over a drain. <laughs> And we had a hose that went to the bathroom. So you'd have to kind of get the water ready in the bathroom and then, you know, strip down and run across and jump in the, <laughs> jump in the basin. And that there was a shower curtain that you could then close. But it was so cold, too, because we have 20-foot ceilings in here. So we couldn't really afford to heat the place properly. We were all in our 20s. So we just, I remember in the morning, I had to hold the shampoo bottle under the stream of hot water just to thaw <laughs> just it out because oh, it was frozen. <laughs> so that was kind of our bohemian beginning. Beginnings in this building. But that's how you end up with a building like this. I mean, you really yeah. have to put in what, what we used to call in the, the Lower East Side, sweat equity. Yeah, right? yeah, no, definitely. We built all the walls that are here, and we did it illegally, too, which became a problem for us later. We didn't have permits for any of the <laughs> construction that we did, and our landlord basically said, you're not supposed to live here, but I'm going to look the other way. Mm. He was across the street, so clearly he knew we were here. <laughs> And we made a lot of improvements to the building. And as I was telling Michael before, and Kai, you know this too, that we really, it took us a while because our landlords were a little suspicious of a bunch of young artists. They are um, Italian immigrants who had been in the neighborhood for pretty much their whole lives, but spoke very little English in this neighborhood. Many people got by entirely on Italian, so it was difficult to communicate with them, and they were unsure of why we wanted to live in a garage and what we were doing in here, and they knew we were artists. They didn't know what that meant, mm. but over time, we became a lot closer with them, and ultimately, we were able to buy the building, so yeah, that's great. now it belongs to us. <laughs> yeah, there have been a lot of changes. You know, I remember coming here probably in 2000 for the first time, and uh I was remembering all the different, when you, you used to have the huge garage door, you could come in and there was a large open space and yeah. you know, really Cheney had his studio over there and things were, weren't divided up as much as they are now. 
And as I recall, that shower basin with yeah. the, it was just like a ring of a shower curtain and you were the only woman living here at the time. So you'd I like, was, you would yeah. announce like, I'm taking a shower. <laughs> like everyone look away. It was I hilarious. Like- I mean, we had a couch that was facing, you know, basically a TV that was largely just used to play video games. So the yeah. guys would be playing Tony Hawk pro skater and they'd be all sitting on the couch. And when their heads were turned, I'd kind of take off my robe and jump in the shower. So uh, it was definitely, I used to sleep in five bathrobes because we were always cold, but, but I'm really glad that we did pioneer here to some mm. extent because also I had a studio for the first time that I could really work in. And I realized something that I tell my students now, which is just that I feel like as an artist, when you leave school, a lot of younger undergrads and grad students will say, you know, what piece of sage advice do you have for me as I, as I exit school into the void? And what I say is keep other artists close if you can, you know, Mm -hmm. find a workspace that you can share. It's an economic decision. It makes things easier financially, but also it just means that there's someone there's someone else around because as we all know, it can be a little isolating being an artist. Mm. Even if you're not in and out of each other's studios, actively critiquing the work or talking, you're still aware of who's there, who's not like they'll, you know, my studio mates will say, we haven't seen you in a few days, you know, and that's a way of kind of motivating you to go and to be part of whatever kind of energy exists in a place where people are working. So I think that's, uh, that was something that happened kind of organically for us, but it's been really important for me and I'll always want to be around other people. Yeah. We, studio. That, that theme has come up quite a bit. The idea of community, um, because not just because you, you need to share spaces or share resources and all that, but you also keep each other going yeah. in many ways. And even if you don't see each other for a month, you know, you, you get back together and you find out what each other has been doing. And, and one person's success tends to motivate other people as well. Absolutely. And also I feel like you see things out of the corner of your eye. Maybe a door is open and you get a look at mm. what's happening. Like uh, Yuta Coter, who, was she a teacher? Did you guys work with her at Columbia? I well, did, yeah. She was doing Monday night visits when I was there as a grad student. Right. That's how I kind of got to know her, even though I'd met her a few times before that. But she now has the studio on the other side of the wall here. And so, you know, sometimes we we chit chat a little bit when I come in and sometimes we'll spend five or 10 minutes talking about whatever we're working on. And those conversations are just, they're really casual and infrequent, but they're still, they're still really, uh, they're really necessary. I feel yeah. for me. And it, it is, it, it is a community, but it's also just, uh, I don't know how to put it. I, I feel like it, it is easy to feel yourself kind of losing that thread, certainly when you're not in school, I think people expect that somehow those sorts of conversations that you have when you're all sharing a building, like when we had our studios together at Watson, Mm. that those things will just kind of continue or that you can make appointments (laughs) with friends, you can set up little salons, but it's really hard to do that. So when you physically share a space, you get married, you have kids, you travel, right? Yeah. Yeah, of course. (laughs) So I think that's really, if there's any way you can cultivate that, that's, that's something people should do. Uh, speaking of having success, you, you've had quite a bit, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm looking over your uh, your biography from Campoli Presti. That's your gallery in London. And you have a, another gallery here in the Lower East Side, Miguel Abreu. I do, yes. And and actually, we're going to talk about that today a little bit of preparing for a show uh, for that, that gallery. But um, you're in quite a few collections, right? The Museum of Modern Art, Whitney Museum, American Art, Los Angeles County Museum of Art, Museum of Contemporary Art, Los Angeles, <laughs> Metropolitan Museum of Art, New York, and Seattle Art Museum, and the uh, FRAC in France, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. So what, what was all that process like, like, like getting recognized and having shows and things like that? It was really exciting. I mean, I feel like I, 
I was lucky in a way with the timing of when I exited grad school because I finished Columbia in 2005. And at that particular moment, it was before the financial collapse in 2008. So galleries were really willing to take on young artists that were untested. And there was a lot of interest, particularly in emerging artists. And there was that somewhat unsavory side of the art world where there were these speculative collectors looking to... Yeah, that was, the, that was the era when people were coming to yeah, open studios or even coming not during open studios and trying to like get into the grad student studios. I know, to it was bizarre. You'd see people and, yeah. in fur coats, you know, exiting the <laughs> elevator at Watson. That's yeah. right. On stilettos, you know, just kind of making their way around looking for someone to, to yeah, to kind of offer shows to or buy work directly out of their studios, not even right. through a gallery. Get in on so, the ground floor. Exactly. And I think that waned really um, after 2008 because people were reluctant to invest heavily in something that had no, you know, and someone that had no track record or had no sort of proven. Yeah, and, and not a coincidence, career. we had a big crash around that time. Yeah, of course. So that was really what perpetuated that. But I, I was a little bit ahead of the curve on that. So I was able to find galleries like Campley Presti that were willing to give me solo shows very early on, on the strength of my thesis work, largely. So, and But actually, it's a little more complicated and nepotistic than that, my <laughs> actual working with Campley Presti, because they, um, they're a young gallery, and Miguel Abreu was a young gallery, too. When I started working with both of them, they hadn't been around for more than a year. So, so, so I was mispronouncing both those names. <laughs> no, no. I mean, Abreu is actually the correct way of pronouncing Miguel's name, but I think uh, no one... Ac- he says Abreu, but everyone oh, else sorry. says Abreu, and <laughs> he's just accepted it, so I say Abreu, but when you listen to his voicemail message, it says Abreu, basically. Oh, good. <laughs> so you were actually correct, but he stopped fighting the tide yeah, of everyone uh, pronouncing his name incorrectly. So I say a brew and uh, Campley Presti, they um, they used to be called Sutton Lane and then they became Campley Presti. It's basically the same gallery. When they were Sutton Lane, they gave me my first solo show and they did it largely because my husband Cheney had been offered. He, he was one of their artists very early on. He's a painter and he'd been offered um, a solo show in a very large space of theirs. It was going to be his second show with the gallery. I was just finishing school at Columbia and he said, God, this space is huge and I don't know what to do with it. Would you consider doing a show with me? We were kind of looking a lot at, we always talk about our work and I think there's influence that goes back and forth, but we were in a particular moment where we were thinking a lot about, I was thinking a lot about the way he was working with abstraction in his paintings and he was looking at my photographs. So we decided to try to offer the gallery a show with the two of us. And of course, they they were interested in my work, but they said, this is a huge space and it's a lot of money for us, you know, just considering the square footage in Paris. They have galleries in Paris and London. And so they said, well, we don't really want to do the show with Eileen. You know, we'll, we'll wait. We'll give her a small show in our smaller space. And Cheney said, no, you, you don't understand. Either we do the show together or I'm not doing it. So... A gun was a little bit to their heads, but they let me do the show, and then after that, they chose to to represent me. So I was very lucky to have that happen. And with Miguel, I'd had sort of a longstanding friendship with him. I'd known him when he worked for other people. He directed a couple of galleries before he had his own gallery, including um, Foundation 2021 in Gramercy. And so I'd met him in just sort of the art world setting and always enjoyed talking with him. So I feel like a lot of the time these relationships, like Cheney's relationship with Andrew Kreps, the gallerist that he works with here in New York, goes back to college days before he was actively working as an artist and before Andrew was a gallerist. So a lot of friendships and affinities lead to these professional relationships. 
We, and we keep saying Cheney. Yeah, uh, but Cheney I'm Thompson. I'm sorry, I'm Cheney Thompson. To say I don't know Cheney's last name. I shouldn't assume everyone knows his last name. <laughs> Cheney Thompson. Cheney and I met at the museum school in Boston, where Kai and I met. So that time was really important for me, and put a lot of friendships and relationships in my life that are that are still in place. Yeah, I think it's also important to mention that in Boston, you guys had at one point a similar kind of living arrangement where. They had that place. Was it on Harrison Avenue or where was it? It was on Kingston Street, actually. Yeah. And there, you know, improvised sleeping slash workspace and all of that. And so in in a way, this wound up being a replication of something that had been tested out before. And also in Boston, what was exciting about that space was that Cheney and his roommates, and this predated my involvement in his life, but they had not only found this big space that they could live in, but they opened a gallery in the front of the space. It was called Oni Gallery. And when we were coming up, when Kai and I were in Boston in the 90s, there was really no place to see contemporary art. There was the ICA, which was great. And there was, so there wasn't no place, but there were a few places. And there was the List Museum at MIT. But other than the List and and the Institute of Contemporary Art. Boston was very stodgy and conventional where art was concerned. So uh, a couple of young artists from the museum school, or actually the Cheney's partners were not from the museum school, but they were other artists that he'd made friendships with somehow. They just decided to open their own space and host exhibitions of emerging artists, and it became an important place, and it operated for over 10 years. Yeah, there was nothing else like that in Boston. Uh, probably there isn't now. I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, there were other galleries like that. I wish I could remember their names that kind of came up around the same time because I think a lot of people found fairly cheap spaces that were about to be developed. Again, Boston was going through some rapid development and gentrification as well. But this space, which was kind of near Chinatown in Boston on Kingston yeah. Street, was a huge building. I mean, it was 12 stories probably. It was a small tower, but it was for sale and had been looking for a buyer for a long time. And the, the landlords basically let us and other people rent floors, 5,000, 10,000 square foot floors for very little money because it was on the market. And, uh, and eventually it was torn down and redeveloped, but it was that little gap between, you know, the, the hopes and, and desires of these, of these, uh, people to gentrify the area and the actual money to make it happen where we, you know, found a a place where we could operate. Timing. 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 Yes. Yes. (laughs) Totally. And I believe, uh, Kai, in your episode, you, you credit Eileen with the reason why you came to Columbia. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I had, uh, well, Columbia, I'd never even thought about Columbia. And then Eileen got in and I went up to visit you for your first year open studios, of mm-hmm. course. And then that's when I first met Tom uh, Roma. And then uh, went back up there for your thesis show, of course. I actually photographed you at your thesis show, mm-hmm. too. Do you remember that? I've got some photos of I that. I do. And without that, I, I never would have even thought about applying there. Actually, I, I was also very suspicious of two things that I was always suspicious of. Eileen is been, you know, had a, a hard, hard hand in like making me realize that they were good. One of them was moving to New York City. <laughs> yeah. Something I was, else I was advocating. For yeah. I was like, New York. And I came to visit Eileen here and we went to um, have drinks at, uh, at Enid's. Mm-hmm. And while we were there, I realized, well, I mean, I, I didn't know about Brooklyn. I could live here. I, you know, Manhattan, no, but Brooklyn, interesting, and wound up moving down here. And then the same thing, grad school. I was like, grad school, why? You know, it's, you know, why spend the money? Why? Go? I had dropped out of the museum school. Why would right. I want to go back to graduate school? And then watching Eileen's experience in the two years she was here and how it radically changed a lot about how she approached photography and everything else, it, it uh, made me think that 
it was a possible good idea, even for different reasons than you went, but I still like opened my eyes up to it. But I feel like we both had this trajectory where when we were in undergrad, neither of us, and I think you guys talked about this in Kai's podcast, but people of our vintage, and I don't need to say our ages necessarily, (laughs) but I think we've given so many clues with years and graduation I don't mind saying that I'm 43, but the fact is just that none of us thought we were going to make a living as artists. So we were going to art school because we had a passion to do certain things. And we knew that we'd find a way to, to live. You know, yeah. I ended up doing graphic design and working in advertising. I did wedding photography. I worked for commercial photographers. So the nice thing about photography is it's like being a plumber. I mean, it's yeah. a trade you have a, you and have a skill, you can apply skills. your trade in right. a number of ways. Right. But Kai and I had both, you know, he'd left undergrad earlier than I did, but we'd had some time off. I didn't go back to grad school until I was, I was 31. So I'd been out of school for, seven seven years oh yeah before so, going back same with me I, I was out for about 10 years and I, I feel like that's I mean that's another thing I advise my students is not to jump directly to grad school and it's more and more of an expectation now but there was a period where I too never thought I'd go back to school but I realized that it was very hard for me to maintain a really active studio I don't like the word practice because I think you save that for dentists and lawyers, but (laughs) a really active presence in my studio when I was working a nine to five job or even freelancing. I just, I didn't have, I, in undergrad, I didn't learn how to motivate myself in that way or how to structure my existence in the studio, how to research, how to, again, reach out to other artists, how to, how to just get through and make work and, and make the most of my time. And that was what I got out of grad school, really. But I, I recognized that I needed something more, that I wasn't going to be able to really continue making art, and I was going to have to let go of it if I didn't do something. And so my the one thing I came to was to give school a try. And I really felt like when I was there, I wasn't so much trying to polish myself or create that body of work that was going to land me a gallery. I was more interested in and really just learning who I am as an artist. Not, I think you can admire other people's work, but that doesn't mean you can necessarily make that work. You have your own spectrum of what you're capable of, and that was what I was figuring out in grad school, and I felt like that would be helpful for Kai, too. And hmm. you know, when I met Kai, we were both so young and motivated and excited, and then you know, I ended up working in advertising. He had these tech jobs hmm. that we both found gratifying and challenging and for both of us too Paid I think yeah, yeah it was the first opportunity I never had money in my life I grew yeah. up in a working class family we always struggled and I, I ended up with a job here it brought me to New York working for a, an interactive advertising agency that doesn't exist anymore it was called interactive eight but I had a salary job where I was making really good money and I just needed to know what it felt like to have some money I never had that and I realized once I had it that it didn't make me happy. And that was also, that was liberating. And yeah, I think also coming down here to visit you and seeing you and Cheney and everyone else that was living here at the time was also, I mean, when I left Boston, that was the last time I worked full time doing computer work. I was like, I must make a change, come back down here. I started, you know, uh, playing music and yeah. uh, photographing more and Um, but going back to this idea of grad school, we've touched on like teaching as a reason, but I think the the other point you make is, is also important that people talk about moments where even though they've been doing it the whole time, they do something that 
sort of announces that they're taking it seriously. And sometimes grad going to graduate school or getting into a program like Columbia is a way of saying like, okay, I can no longer yeah. just like hem and haw and say, Oh yeah, I photograph, or I do this, or I do that. You're like, no, I, you know, I'm serious about it now. And like, I, and people are going to know that if I'm doing it or not doing it, or if I've stopped doing it, there's like right. consequences to it. Um, I know, I think Tom speaks about when he got the Guggenheim realizing that, oh, I can no longer just be the photographer in Brooklyn who no one sees their work. Like now it's, you know, announced kind of thing. Right. You know? And I think when you when you put up your thesis show and you go out in the world after that, that's a way of doing that as well, right? Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. And I think you recognize that you've been given a real opportunity because we all know that there are a lot of people applying for those four spots a year at Columbia. So when you get one, I think there's a moment where you say, wow, they really made a mistake and gave it to me. <laughs> and then right. there's another moment where you say, wow, well, those other people I was kind of hanging out with that day that had made it that far, they had landed an interview, but they were then told, no, you can't come to school here. It is a real privilege and it's mm -hmm. a short period of time. It's two years. So there's really no room for for wasting any of it. So yeah, two years, it feels like three months. And of course, right. it's a lot of money, too. It's a That's, lot of money out of our pockets. It's an investment yeah. that you you really feel responsible for. I mean, and especially if you're if you're in a relationship at the time and you, you know, you have to mm -hmm. kind of convince someone you want to make this investment. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. Yeah. You really are responsible for uh, what you end up doing with that degree. That's true. Yeah, I graduated seven years ago, and I just got my statement. I opened it up, and I still, I'm, I'm now. I only owe fifteen thousand dollars. <laughs> all right. So it's like, woohoo! Yeah, down to only fifteen. Chipping away. Exactly. That's all you can do. Exactly. But I do think you can't put a price on what it offers you. No. And it's true that we could have all arrived at the same destination without going to school, but we'll never know that. And also, for me, I mean, I know you guys made some really both of you made really strong friendships at Columbia and your friendship with Tom is one of the things that you've discussed, um, in these conversations. And Tom was a major force in my experience at Columbia too. But I also met, I met Tamar Halpern, mm -hmm. Tanith Berkeley and Matt Keegan, three of my classmates who are still 10 years later, three people that I talk to on a weekly basis. So yeah, it's like, that's almost worth the price of admission right there is, is making friends like that. And I feel like it's such an intense experience that it fosters those kind of relationships quickly. Absolutely. What was the, the work you were doing for your thesis at Columbia? Uh, for the thesis, I was making the work that in some ways I'm still ruminating on. Like if you look at the work that's on the walls here in my studio, I'm, I'm still thinking a lot about, studio photography that was one thing that I came to when I went back to grad school I had been I'd done some street photography I'd done a lot of work with my own family um, taking portraits and I I had finished a landscape project that's what I applied to Columbia with but when I got there I was pretty certain that for the first time in my life I really wanted to work in the studio and that was largely because I wanted to be able to control a little bit more of the circumstances of of the photographs. I wanted to set things up and leave them and return to them and know that they would be unchanged. I wanted to work in this iterative kind of way. And it was a body of work that came out of that sort of desire um, that I presented at my thesis. It was called Smoke and Mirrors. And literally, I was photographing smoke and mirrors. And <laughs> I came to that because I was doing research when I was uh, first at Columbia into ghost photography. 
it was something that I've always been interested in my whole life, I guess, in, in wanting to believe that there's more than what we accept as reality. You know, whether it was, I had a series of books as a child, I forget what it was called. I'd love to find it for my son, but one book was about the Hope Diamond. And then there was another book about uh, the, the man on the moon who represents, who looks like Easter Island statues. So there were all these kind of, uh, interesting, mythical, magical stories that were discussed at the level of a, a young child's understanding about different, like the Hope Diamond. I don't know if you know about the Hope Diamond, but it was a, a, a large stone that supposedly was in the eye of an idol and was stolen by some Indiana Jones-like figure right. who yeah. then you know, turned it into a piece of jewelry and everyone who bought it died in some right. spectacular car crash or you know, had some terrible, bizarre accident because it was cursed, supposedly. So... I'd always had an interest in these kinds of subjects that suggest that there might be something more magical than what we accept as reality. And those were the books that I grew up thinking about a lot. And ghost photography was something that I'd, I'd been interested in since looking at 19th century pictures of, of this spiritualist kind of moment that was happening after the Civil War and also with the dawning of photography where there were a lot of people creating ghost photographs that usually featured someone in a sheet or, you know, the ghost was a transparent being. It wasn't necessarily something more disembodied than that. But and of course, back then it was believed, right? Oh, it I was mean- absolutely believed. Yeah. There was such a national sense of mourning after the civil war. So many people had experienced loss that, you know, um, that spiritualism was very popular. People had seances to try to commune with their dead loved ones. And there were very celebrated photographers that were known for, for being able to conjure, you know, your, your dearly departed. There was Mumler in Boston actually, who, who had a studio and he took a picture of, of Mary Todd Lincoln with Lincoln standing in the background, you know, she posed for him and then he was able to produce this picture where Lincoln was also present. And he was later discredited because evidently his assistants would actually break into people's homes to steal existing photos of their family members. And then they would do all this darkroom wizardry to insert them into. But photography was, was so new back then and and itself was thought as kind of magical and mystical. But what interests me is that it still retains that even after, after so many years of, of people being aware of how photographs can be manipulated and with digital imaging particularly, it's, it's even more possible to insert all kinds of things. I think people know that that's true, but we still look at photographs and look to photographs for evidence of things. And so it's that magical quality that photography has, an ability to penetrate some sort of veil that we can't access just looking at the world with our eyes. Yeah, I, think, I think a more common example of that is even though everyone is so aware of it right now, and it's kind of a big issue right now, people are still shocked when they see retouched photographs on the cover of uh, Vogue or cover right. of Vanity Fair, and, and they see the before and after, and it, they're still very, it's still very easy to believe these photographs. Absolutely. I mean, I think people, they know that, that there's retouching that's going on um, when they look at a Sports Illustrated model. But <laughs> but people still believe that they can aspire uh, to be... You're going to have to cancel your subscription now, Kai. <laughs> they still believe that they, that they should aspire to be that shape when even the woman in the picture was not that shape. Yeah. You know? so, and that's because we want to believe. You know, I used to love the X-Files in the 90s and there are all these... There's that poster yeah. you know, on Fox Mulder's there. wall that says, I want to believe. Oh, right. Yeah, and there's a picture of a flying saucer. And as much as he was you know, someone who was rational and would kind of interrogate things, there was a deep part of him, that character, who wanted to believe that there was more, that there were people who had special powers, that there 
that there were aliens, that there were uh, shadow societies or whatever the plot lines of the X-Files were dealing with. And I think there's a big part of me that wants to believe in things that I can't quite believe in. I, I'm not religious, you know, I'm an atheist. I, but I, I wanted to believe, I guess, that there was a way that some of these ghost photographs could be rendering something real perhaps in a field of, of thousands of fakes, there was one authentic image. And so um, when I was in grad school, I started trying to make some of my own ghost photographs. And that involved, I was looking at, at 1990s internet sites about ghosts where people would upload pictures that they claimed demonstrated some kind of supernatural energy. And in the 90s, unlike in the 19th century, ghosts were seen to be these orbs or these clouds they were not they were formless it's always presence. like wisps in the, in exactly. the photograph right and if you've ever used a point and shoot camera and a piece of dust is stuck to the <laughs> lens you know that that forms this orb or if you you know you see a picture where someone's smoking near the camera whether it's the photographer or someone nearby and the smoke is lit by the flash in a certain way so i was trying to replicate some pictures like that at columbia and it's very hard to do. And give herself emphysema at the same time. Yes. I was also trying to quit smoking. And so I was obsessed with smoke on a number of levels. And I had to smoke like 20 cigarettes an hour in order to produce these pictures, which was supposedly going to help me quit. But yeah. it was funny because I, the thesis work came out of me trying to isolate the smoke itself so that I could then insert it in a scene. So it would exist as a kind of spectral presence where other people were also staged. And so I started doing these tests where I would just take the smoke and photograph it alone in the studio. I did not think of it as my artwork in any way. And these tests, at a certain point I realized, oh God, it's really hard to get smoke to appear. And it's especially hard if you have a decent camera. I think those snapshots work really well because of the relationship of the lens and the flash. And when you have a a flash on, when you have strobes on a stand and you're shooting with a four by five or a medium format camera, you don't get the same effects. So I was really struggling and I realized at a certain point that a mirror, just a cheap mirrored tile, if I set it up, I could, um, I could photograph the smoke by doubling it, you know, in the mirror. And I could also bounce light off the mirror with the flash. And so it was a great way to get the smoke to show up. I also realized that if I used a modeling light, I could control where the smoke traveled because of the heat. So I was doing all this fluid dynamics kind of research, research. And I was generating these pictures, which I then showed to Dana Hoey, just as a kind of aside, these are my tests trying to get the smoke to show up. And she basically said, I don't care about this ghost photography thing. This is where it's at in these mm-hmm. pictures. And again, I think this happens a lot. Sometimes where you think the work is, is not really mm-hmm. where it is. It's somewhere, you know, no, it's in, in, the in stages and right. right. And it emerges. And yeah. it's, it's nice to have someone to come in and help point something out to you. No, it's true. And Dana was never one to tell me she liked things if she didn't. <laughs> and I really I, appreciate that. I remember that. the story being even a little, even more dramatic mm-hmm. is that she was doing the studio visit and then you said she went over and like closed the door. She did. Yeah. <laughs> she like closed the door of the studio and was like, no, 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 this is what you should be doing. No, I know. And that was interesting to me because, you know, she has a way of sort of, uh, you guys met with her. I did. Yeah. You didn't. She, like, um, Dana had, I think, just started to teach undergrad there when I was there, perhaps, yeah. Well, she had this way of really taking a beat before she would speak. So she would sit down and look at things and in a very poker-faced way, take it in and then and then speak in a really measured and I think very thoughtful way. But she had that poker face on. She was looking at these and then she just got up and shut the door. And I thought, wow, she's really going to let me have it now. And she doesn't want to have like any witnesses, basically. <laughs> but it was the opposite. She said, she said, you know, this is really 
I think this, this gets at a lot of things you've been dancing around and, and even though it's not what you thought it was and it's not something that you can narrativize or talk about, you should continue working with it because she also said, which I thought was interesting, this makes good use of your sloppiness as a photographer because mm. I'm a person who always had light leaks in my pictures. I was always touching my negatives and messing things up and marring things. And she felt like those blips, those scratches and those mistakes had found a home in this way of working. And it was, it was loose because I didn't think it was art. Right. You know, I was reading a lot of your the press releases about your shows on the way over and the descriptions of your work. And um, I think that project, Smoke and Mirrors, um, in, uh, was somebody wrote about it. Um, uh, it was a reference to Sharkovsky's Mirrors and Windows. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in another reference, there was a, a still life project you're doing. They talk about Roland Barthes, The End of Life, uh, or from Camera Lucida, right? right? The, the thing, all things die in the end, right, basically, yeah, right? Yeah, thinking about photography and, and death, yeah. And it seems like, and you, you mentioned you were doing street photography before Columbia. It's, it seems like that project was a transition from more modernist traditional photography into conceptual photography, but really holding on to the foundation of, of traditional photography because you're, you're always uh, remarking or commenting or, or experimenting with the medium itself. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are people who say, you're not one of those photographer photographers. <laughs> and when they say that, I say, you're absolutely wrong. Right. I mean, frankly, mm-hmm. I don't work in a cameraless way. My work looks like the work of some of my peers like Walid Beshti who works with photograms but for me everything is about the way that the lens transforms the way things look in in actual reality it, it it's transformed by the lens in other words I'm very aware of how the lens is going to take what I'm presenting to it and render it and give me something different like I would never show my setups as artwork they only work when they pass through the camera and also just thinking about like photographs and how they traffic in this this notion of truth all of these things, and even the way that chance operates in street photography, it can also operate when you're photographing something like smoke that you can't necessarily see or that you that you uh, can't really control. So there's a controlled element, and then there's an element that's open to to things sort of unfolding in the way uh, that they even do. Even in the discussion of that work, we're talking about 19th century photography right. and, and the birth of photography. Right. And I do think that these are two parallel traditions, too. If you think about working in the studio or working with... Uh, with painting as a kind of underpinning or thinking pictorially about things. There are, you know, whether you look at someone like discovering Cameron when I was younger, Julia Margaret mm-hmm. Cameron was important to me. So there are, like, the pictorialist tradition in photography, I think, is something that has, you know, come in and out of favor and is maybe being rediscovered. But, yeah, just uh, I, I think of myself as being very traditional in some ways. And definitely really interested in the medium. I couldn't do this in any other in any other medium. Yeah, and uh, you know, even though in your a lot of your photographs you allow the viewer to see what would be considered like the background information, mm-hmm. you know, the supports for the gels, or you know, I remember for a long time you had this set up with wooden bars and I think brass was it like brass pipes connecting it yeah. or something. Mm-hmm. And and in the photographs, even though you can look at everything and put your finger on and go, okay, that's a mirror. That must be, you know, dust on the mirror. That's smoke. And this is this thing holding a gel or whatever. You still had no sense of the scale of it, really. I mean, it was still very mysterious and it was very much a photographic rendering of this thing. No, it's If you would walk in the studio and look at it, you'd 
people could probably walk past that and not even know what it was. You know, oh, what I mean? sure. They wouldn't know that that's what you were where you were generating all these images. But it's funny for me too that you bring up you know the edges of the set because it was always important to me that there would be an image that in some ways, like say if a series of pictures were presented, that there'd be one that might deflate the others by revealing something about the circumstances of how the images were made. And I guess I definitely think about my work in in terms of a viewer there's some kind of a provocation there to look more closely at things or to try to orient yourself and I feel like there's there's an exchange between me someone who's making something and the person who's looking at it trying to parse what they're looking at so I think of it as a very communicative thing and I always want to leave a few breadcrumbs I guess so that someone can find their way or puzzle out some of those things Hmm. I think that's also what you could make the argument of it being that because some people used to talk about your work, I don't know if they still do, they would talk about it in terms of like uh, commercial photography, mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, God, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, photograph. Il- illustrative? Or? No, no, no. Uh, stuff that people would, you order online, you're like, oh, I need a background that has such and such thing. What's that word? A stock? Yes. Oh. Stock, yes, yeah, yes. Like, yeah, stock, <laughs> yeah. corporate. No, I definitely, yeah. I worked oh. with stock in yeah, advertising so, so for years. So people would often yeah. say like, oh, this looks like, you know, corporate stock photography that would That's be in the great. background of a bank, right? And then <laughs> That's what I was going for. Right, but, but, then you <laughs> would, but then you would, but then those reveals that are in there are the exact sort of things that would never be in those, exactly. right? You would, you, that would be the stuff that would be in a reject pile because you'd be like, oh, well, I can see that this is a, you know, a piece of wood next to this propping that up. That's, it breaks the illusion. Exactly, and what happens happens when there's a site for projection like that you know there's a stage set but then there's then there's something that that suggests that that stage is being presented to you by someone in other words there's a presence of someone constructing this thing that you're looking at so Mm. that whole moment of again wanting to believe but not being quite able to do it because there's something in the way um, that's something I just keep returning to again and again as a Mm. place that offers me a lot to think about so but definitely you know I I remember when I got out of undergrad at the museum school, one of the first places I tried to get a job was with a commercial photographer who photographed Revo sunglasses in in Boston. And he was, somehow a friend got me an interview with this guy who was pretty huge, had a big studio. I can't remember his name, but he sat down and looked at my portfolio and he said, kid, you got talent, basically. Was he smoking a cigar at the time? (laughs) Pretty much. He said, kid, you got talent, which is why you shouldn't work for me. And I I said, why? And he said, this is going to corrupt you, this business. It will chew you up and spit you out and then he said look at my personal work and he showed me these you know very formulaic black and white nudes of young women that he'd I'm sure you know convinced to pose for him and he's like so I'm looking at it like ooh and he said it's pretty bad right or something like that and I was kind of like yeah and he just said kudos to him for recognizing it well he said this business will ruin you he Mm. said you don't want to do this but I'm really interested in that kind of contamination like I did Mm. work with stock and advertising for a long time and I'm sure that that haunts for you know along the ghost lines Mm. my my work to some extent but I would never I want to take that material and that reality that I spent that time doing that and use it as part of my work and I'm curious about why, you know, certain things exist in stock and and what kind of, why we stage products in the way that we do, what kind of seductive atmospheres we feel create that space where you'll feel uh, a desire to buy something or you'll look at it in a certain light. So all of the, all of that stuff that goes on in the background, sometimes with smoke, sometimes with colored gels or indeterminate spaces, that's really interesting to me. So I used to say in the beginning when people said, what is this about? I remember Jerry Salt said, what is this about to me at Mm. one of the shows at Columbia? And I said, it's product photography without the product. And he went, hmm. 
you know, so that's really, the atmosphere was very important. So we should uh, um, talk about uh, where this work is going now. You're, you're preparing for a show at uh, Miguel Abreu or Abreu, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> what is this show going to be? Uh, well, that's a good question. The show is in February. I was supposed to do it in December, but I ended up pushing it back because I'm still working some of those things out. I've been, uh, this summer I've been working with the scanner for the first time and solely the scanner. So I ha- it's the first little series of work that I've done that the camera hasn't been involved with, but I really think of the flatbed scanner as a camera in a lot of ways. And so I've been taking some of the materials that I used to set up more and photograph in the smoke and mirrors kind of era of work. They're these two by two mirrored tiles from Home Depot and gels and some other materials that I can kind of reach for that just find their way into the pictures like drop ceiling tiles and metal mesh and things that I find around where I'm working all summer long we were staying at a house in in Long Island and I was working in the basement and I would just grab Mm. kind of whatever I could find in this rented basement and it ended up in my pictures and one of the things I was really excited about was these drop ceiling tiles because not only because of their surface and how they could be rendered by the scanner. And you know what I mean when I say that, those white tiles with kind of the, they're made out of some material (laughs) like hummusote somewhere along those lines. But I think when we look at those tiles, we see a surface that has a certain texture. So there's like a haptic quality to looking at it in a photograph, but it also has all these associations with, you know, maybe those terrible years you spent in a cubicle or some sort of institution, you know, the way the fluorescent lighting feels that goes around those tiles or the kind of mm. cables that are hidden behind them. The so, way they absorb water and get mildewy and Exactly. Moldy and and right. it's, there's something oppressive about that material because of what it stands for. So that, that was something I was thinking about and I was putting all these materials on the flatbed and scanning them along with mirrors and sometimes moving the materials to create these sort of spectral forms. Mm-hmm. So the the small restricted space of the flatbed and it's very limited ability to create an image because you know the the scanner beam just goes from top to bottom so you have to deal with this kind of structure it's very it's very rigid in a way it's not like working with the camera but it I also like comes a little bit more time based as well because you're is. waiting for that line by line scan. Exactly. And and I really like constraints. I like to set up some limits that I can then try to operate wildly within. And the scanner has so many built-in limitations that it's fun to try to figure out how to push it. So anyway, that's the work I was making this summer, just playing with the scanner and seeing what I could do with these materials in that space with that with that device and its logics. And now I'm taking that work and figuring out how to juxtapose it with other things that I'm planning to shoot. I've been doing I've been doing some portraits in the last few years. I hadn't done that for a long time. I've been photographing my sister and another close friend. And I did that for the last show at Miguel's a couple of years ago. And in that show, I was really thinking a lot about death and was photographing people that I'd photographed over 20 years and re-photographing older pictures of them and making more contemporary pictures as a way of thinking about aging and how, you know, photographic materials, I like to put pressure on them by soaking them in water and scratching them and marring them but also people undergo a similar process just by living you know Mm. by by uh, all of our experiences are written on our faces to some extent the pain that people suffer problems with their health stress all of these things leave their marks so i was thinking about how both time how time affects both photographic materials and our own bodies in a certain measurable way that's what I was doing in the last show and I think I'm going to be revisiting doing some more portraits along with these uh these scanner pictures that I've been making so these the pictures are up now and of course you people listening can't see them but 
We were uh, hoping to maybe uh, get some copies of some images that we can post uh, with this episode. Uh, I'd love to do that. But basically, they're, they're, I don't like to describe them as abstract, but I do for lack of a better term. But they're, I'm interested in color and texture in these images and also for the associations that cling to the materials. But I imagine ju- juxtaposing these color images that are more painterly with, with portraiture and some more kind of conventional photographic images that I haven't created yet. So I have some work to do for yeah, February. Ab- abstract is so just such a big loaded word mm-hmm. and it it's it's become so generic and 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 then yeah. it, it just opens opens itself up to whatever people want to think about it and it's, yeah I, i'm trying to get away from that word as well and instead of talking about being abstract just talking about it in terms of what it might be leading to or what it might be referencing or what it might be about. Yeah, I think that was, there was definitely a desire around the time that I got out of undergrad to consolidate a whole bunch of people under one rubric in, for the convenience of curating shows or marketing work, and that was abstract photography, which is just kind of weird because all photography is abstraction. You know, you're never like presenting reality per se. It's it's a It's a camera's perspective on reality, and it's always like a an abstraction from it to some extent. I don't, mm. and for me, like the index, the little mark that lets you know you're looking at some real material or the fallen hair or the fingerprint, those things that really take you back to reality are so important in the pictures that I make. And that's why they're not abstract, you know, in, in a lot of ways. But I do feel like that term is just, has been really emptied out. But now, despite resisting it for so long, I use it because it's a way of describing these images that are a little more ambiguous that I can use in an exhibition to create some kind of modulation between images like this where there's room for the viewer to make all kinds of associations and images that are a little bit more um, legible and might have they might people might have more of an understanding of where they fit in a kind of historical tradition of photography so yeah I go back and forth and in this show there'll definitely be black and white work that might be landscape work because I shot a lot this summer in Long Island and it might be portraiture I'm not sure yet one thing I remember I think learning actually from watching Cheney is uh, even in like 2000, watching him in 2000, 2001, those, those early years when we were first in New York, that Cheney would get a show or be in a show and then he would generate new work for the show. It was always yes. about, oh, there's a show coming up and, and you know, even if there's a pile of paintings in the corner or something, yes. they weren't going to get used. It was an excuse to make new work. Like, That's true. has to be something new for this show. I did a... Um, a studio, uh, not a studio, I did a visiting artist uh, talk with um, a colleague's class up at Hampshire, and they were asking me all these questions about, oh, because I have a show up at Smith, and they're like, did you make the prints based on the size of the show, or did you, you know, all these questions, assuming that because of the show I had, had like generated work in a certain way for it, but it was, of course, work I had finished a while ago, and so I wasn't making any of those sorts of decisions thinking about an exhibition, but... I know Cheney certainly does, and I think you now you guys have two these two galleries at least that you're showing work in, and Miguel now has this new space which is much larger, much much larger than the old space. And I'm wondering how how much of the the timeline of that of like knowing that you've got two galleries that you might be having a show you know every year, every other year in, and knowing the physical dimensions of the space, how how that plays into how you're actually the creative process and how you're making work, and how much of that is a factor. I think that's a really good question. I 
I would say that I'm the kind of person who is just always working. I'm sort of compelled to make work. And so I'm, there are things that are always chugging along. And then there are other things that I might make specifically for an exhibition when I feel like there's a component that's missing. But I definitely don't make shows for specific sites. And Cheney and a lot of the other artists I know tend to think a lot about like if they're showing in a particular city, they'll reflect on the history of that city or the history of the institution that they're showing in. But I'm much more of, I mean, when I have an opportunity to show, I'll consider just about anything I've ever made as possibly uh, relevant for the exhibition. So I'm always, every show I have, I feel like it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a fragment or a chapter of something that's much larger than that particular situation that I'm working on. And I try to make sense of what I have for that given space or given time, but it's really not, I'm not so much responding to sites or to these particular opportunities as I am trying to mark my place where I am in a much more so you're making durational a, project. you're making an edit and coming up with thinking about the show as a new thing and that at this point in time when it's happening, what could I possibly put together that would make sense from recent work and things that are going on and work that you're still going to make? That's true. Before the show comes up. But I definitely, I've now started thinking about the work that I made when I was an undergrad as sometimes being viable for exhibitions. Like there was a show I did a few years ago in Los Angeles at Overden and Kite, and I was remembering these pictures I'd taken of a castle, and I think you know those pictures, yeah. Kai, in, in the small town where I grew up in New Hampshire, there was a castle because some eccentric millionaire had decided to duplicate a castle he saw in Scotland as his home. And so we were all very Seems interested. Like it's always Scotland. I know. <laughs> like... We were all very interested in this castle that was plopped in the middle of a small town in New Hampshire. So when I was first at the museum school, I would go up there and photograph this castle because it looked very gothic. And, you know, they were called the Sisters of Mercy, the nuns who, who occupied this castle as their as their convent. And so we used to steal their sign. It's also important to note that uh, Eileen would wear the darkest brown uh, (laughs) nail polish she could get. I wasn't allowed to wear black. Her father wouldn't let her wear black, but she could wear dark, dark, dark brown. I I hate to admit that my friends and I used to steal the sign from the Sisters of Mercy because we all love that band (laughs) and they had a hand-painted sign. So we stole it five or six times so that each of us had one in our in our bedrooms. They would keep putting it back up. But anyway. And, I, and so you're going to hell is what you're basically, saying. Basically, basically, I, I apologize to the Sisters of Mercy if they're listening to this. But, um, well, the name does suggest that they would probably forgive. I hope. I hope they would. The poor sisters. They kept putting the sign back up. God bless them. They were undeterred. But anyway, um, the pictures of this castle came to my mind when I was working on the show for Overden and Kite. I had a number of different kinds of work, again, some more process-based abstractions and some portraits. And I, I wanted this architectural image of this building. And so I said to myself, oh, I got to go to New Hampshire, photograph this castle. And then I just thought, I'll just print that picture I made 20 years ago. And so I, I definitely will reach back to things I really feel like in other words, the work doesn't just reside with what I'm doing now, and I don't mm. believe in a kind of linear progress where whatever I'm doing now is the best work that I've done. But I think we tend to circle back to things, and I see patterns, even in the very early work that I made, that speak to what I'm maybe more able to articulate now as a set of concerns. But I'm really interested in in, in taking on almost anything that I've ever made as potential for an exhibition. So yes, it's as photographers, we have the luxury of, of editing for shows, but painters like Cheney very often have to kind of go back, go back to square one. But you're right, Kai, even when he had a stack of paintings sitting on the floor, yeah. those would not be really considered for an exhibition because he's very much making it for that particular site. 
Yeah, even if it meant staying up for like five days on end and, you know, living that's, on... That's the fun. Yeah, you know? living on <laughs> cigarettes and coffee and... Red Bull, yes. <laughs> oh, no, Red Bull now, too. Yeah. Four loco? No, no. Okay. <laughs> so one thing that we can see in the studio that I'd love you to talk about is several architectural models made out of foam core mm-hmm. and, you know, tiny little, I assume, to scale uh, versions of the work that are being tried out and glued in place and everything. Do you want to talk about that process? Sure, sure. Well, I'm working on the show for Miguel's space. And as you mentioned, it's a much bigger space. Yeah, it's massive. Uh, He's had a small, well, it's not even small, but he's had a a reasonably sized gallery on Orchard Street for several years. And I've Mm -hmm. done three shows on Orchard Street, 36 Orchard. And now he has a new space on 88 Eldridge, which is in the same neighborhood of Chinatown. In here in New York, and it's a much larger space. And for some reason, I can never remember the square footage. I think I blocked it out, but <laughs> it's it's a much more intimidating space. It's and big so, enough that if when you walk in the entrance, if someone was standing on the other end, you couldn't just say "Hey" and they would uh-huh. hear you. Oh, I know. We joke about them getting roller skates because when <laughs> yeah. I go there, if the door is locked and I come off the elevator, it takes someone a good ten minutes to walk from the back. So to, there's this sound of footsteps. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, there's a long <laughs> corridor that would just be perfect for skateboarding. Down but I don't yeah. think Miguel is, is exactly going to oh, do that. Oh, you get one of those new little Segway boards. I know, uh, right? I know. Or scooter, <laughs> right. something. Or a small donkey, perhaps. I mean, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> they need something. It takes far too long. But um, that's the size of the space, so I'm, I'm considering how to deal with that. And I, also, I just really enjoy thinking about scale in my work. Like, mm. in the studio now, I have these... 50 by 60 color prints up. They're digital Cs. Mm. Uh, I tend to work analog when I can, but these are digital. And I've made large black and white silver prints with my printer, Sam Marion's in Red Hook. He makes very large prints. So even in a smaller space, I like thinking about how a bigger print confronts a viewer in terms of like a bodily relationship to it. Mm. So thinking about scale has been important to me since the very beginning, but I definitely have to also consider what size I'll be printing things um, based on the space where I'm having the show. And in January, I have a show in Norway. It's a group show with Lucas Blaylock, a photographer from Mm. New York, and two European artists whose names escape me. I'm sorry, but maybe I can give you their names later. Yeah, we can just post them. And you can post their names. But the four of us are doing a show in Norway, in Bergen, at the Kunsthalle Bergen, which is a big institution there. And it's just a huge space with a very high ceiling. And so I'm trying to figure out how to you know, make sense of those proportions. Mm. I haven't really shown in a space like that before. So you would make an architectural model of the space? Yes. So okay. we, um, I couldn't make a model if my life depended on it, but right. I have friends who help me do that. And then I work with these... A lot of just sometimes just colored squares that are different sizes, 50 by 60, 30 by 40, 20 by 24, the sizes that I tend to work in, which are given sort of photographic paper sizes, mm. which is funny because photo paper doesn't exist in sizes anymore. It's in big rolls <laughs> yeah, that people cut. Right. Yeah. But I'm still interested in those arbitrary you know, assignments of, of size. So that's how I think of things in those sorts of units. And mm. sometimes I'll use a blank placeholder image to just figure out how many pictures I might want to have in an exhibition. And then as I get closer to making an edit, I, I swap those in with to scale images and move them around in the model. Yeah, I think it's important to have a method. Like when I was laying out the show that I have up at Smith, I I wanted to use Google SketchUp because I've used that before for like the 3D view of it. But then it's it's actually kind of clumsy to work with for those things. So I can never, I, I can't figure out. Skills. Yeah. So I, I just used illustrator cause illustrator is just vector and you can easily do everything to the same proportion. You know, you can make a huge illustrator file and it doesn't care that what you're doing it with, but it is nice to imagine where things are going to be and to 
It's funny, I can't do that on the screen. I've tried because it's nicer at home to be able to do that on a laptop than toting some big foam model (laughs) around. But for me, I really, I need to see it physically and I have these little things that I literally just put a little bit of sticky, you know, Mm. material on the back and move them around. And that's really how I kind of... I can transport myself to the so, space. You mean you, foam cutouts that are the same size as what you'll be hanging and you just sort of right. we lay build, them out? We build an architectural model like you would see, you know, architects work with out of foam. And then I have all my little small printouts and I just move them around on the walls, getting a sense of how much space I might like, like things to have. And then it actually becomes, I'll sequence things once I know which images I'm, I'm working with. I don't like to figure that out when I, when I arrive somewhere and some poor art handlers trying to hold up a <laughs> yeah, 50 yeah. by 60 frame. <laughs> mounted right. piece yeah. so that's no, you should be standing in the corner with <laughs> your beret on smoking a cigarette <laughs> to the left yeah, yeah i'd like <laughs> them to think that i know what i'm yeah. doing you fool <laughs> uh, once you've um you know you've had you've had uh, several shows with both your galleries and all and you, do you do you build up a kind of currency with them where do the conversations change over time in terms of making sure you're doing something they want you to do, things like that? It's funny. It's it's a relationship that always needs fine-tuning. And both the galleries that I work with, I've been with for 10 years. So I have real close friendships with them. And it's, it's, it's an interesting question because they, to different degrees, you know, they do studio visits with me, but they don't necessarily weigh in that much on what they like or don't like. I think they try to give me space where that's concerned, but they definitely... You know, when certain things sell, they start saying, oh, do you have any more of that? Or do you <laughs> have any more of this? And I think they're both Campoli Presti and Miguel Brew. They're sensitive to protecting me from, you know, worrying too much about those things. And frankly, I feel like even if I tried to give people what I thought they wanted, it still wouldn't work. Because yeah. whenever I have made something and I say, oh, this is going to, people are going <laughs> to like this. This is really yummy or sexy or whatever. They go for the thing that's really personal that I think everyone's going to say, like, why should I care about that? That's still the thing that people mm. connect with. So it's very hard to predict what people are going to respond to. And in a way, it's great because then you can just write that whole conversation off. But um, the galleries, I do have some currency, but I have to say it's it's funny with them just having shown with them so long. But I remember when I did my first show at Miguel's Space, um, it was, when was that? In 2008. Yeah, and, so I guess. and I was happy with the show and he was too. And Peter Schoolworth, who's a painter, who's a friend of mine who also works with Miguel, he was like, yeah, good show, but anyone can do one good show, you know? And <laughs> oh. he basically said, he kind of like pointed to people walking by on Orchard and said, anyone out here can do one good show. But he's like, what happens when it's your third show or your fourth show or your fifth show? And mm. that's really true. I'm recognizing that, you know, once you're not kind of emerging anymore, how do you continue to to bring work that's that's worthy of being exhibited and written about and given this kind of platform how do you extend the things that you've done and how do you bring new conversations to the table that's when it gets really difficult yeah it's interesting though there's there's real value in like you say merging artists and there's now there seems to be real value in artists who've been doing it for a really long time and then there's the kind of the middle yeah right that that uh maybe yeah that still needs a little bit of work yeah, yeah. i mean that's where i am is in the middle and for me things are exciting right now because I'm starting to do some of these institutional shows like I'm doing this group show in Bergen but it's such a huge museum that basically the four of us are having solo show size shows inside Mm. this museum and then I also have an opportunity to do a two-person show and I'm hoping it'll happen I'm not sure it will but at this museum in Athens it's called the Cycladic Museum 
And there's a, a woman whose project is called Radio Athens. Her name is Helena Papadopoulos, and she curates shows. And she's putting on, hopefully, a show at this institution with me and Vols. I don't know if, if you know who Vols is, but he's a painter who's part of lyrical abstraction, the kind of uh, art informel in the 30s, 40s, and 50s in France. But he mm. comes from Germany, W-O-L-S. So he's a German artist who made his work in France, so both countries kind of claim him. But he was working in the kind of Belmer tradition of sort of surrealist photography in the 1930s. Mm. And this curator was very interested in Vols and had a contact at the Vols estate where she could access all these beautiful vintage prints. And she proposed to this museum in Athens that they do a show with me and Vols because she saw some similar... Um, especially in my black and white work and my work with still life and my work with staining and the surface of the paper and the surface of the of the negatives rather. Um, Valls was also really interested in that in painting, which was working with the formless. So she decided she wanted to do a show with the two of us and I'm hoping that it will happen um, in April this year. But again, this is another institutional opportunity. So these, when you get a little bit into the middle of your career, that's when you hope that these kinds of things happen to you. You've done some gallery shows, but it's, it's a very different, there are different pressures put on you when you're working with an institution. You don't have to sell the work necessarily. And you're speaking to a different audience. And for me, just being able to have my work juxtaposed with someone like Vals puts me in a whole other, it's another arena and another way of understanding what I'm doing. That's not just generated by the art world's concerns of saying oh this is abstract photography and they're going to put me in a group show with the same six people you know a hundred times i can understand that relation because your work has been you know compared to to this early modernist kind Mm -hmm. of work right Mm -hmm. and uh the pictorial work and then the other work but after world war one right there was this complete rejection of ideal beauty in photography especially um and, and in europe it was a little different from in the united states but but there was a, 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 an attention to abstraction and shapes and dealing with the human form and humanity in general, right? And uh, I wonder if, you, if you've ever considered that, that maybe there was also a, a period after 9-11 where there was also this, this re-examination of, of beauty and what we care about and things like that. I think that's so true, and I'm really glad you bring that up, Michael, because you know for a while when I was first working with abstraction, some people were pushing back and saying, this is just about form and it's not about anything that really matters. And I, I like to think that that's not the case. In some ways I work intuitively, but then I try to edit with an eye that, that, that puts more pressure on what the work means. And, and I really feel like abstraction has tended to emerge historically in art during times of great crisis, post-war periods, where there is almost no, no legible way for people to express their feelings about the, the ruptures in their senses of, of humanity, of, of good and evil, of, of just their very survival. These are things that are beyond language for people sometimes. And certainly post-war abstraction, like uh, what I'm talking about with, uh, with the art informel movement that Walls is associated with, that started post-World War I and then continued post-World War II. It was also the Gutai group uh, I've thought about recently, largely because of um, a fellow artist, A. Arakawa, exposing me to them. But they were these Japanese artists that were working with similar ideas of the formless um, post-World War II in Japan. So these things do tend to emerge when there's been uh, a kind of, I don't know how to put it, other than to say a rupturing of people's yeah. sense of, of reality and of what, a, a shaking to the core it, because of these events. Right, it becomes so uh, um, within us, we're not even sure we're expressing it at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So that's possible. I mean, I was here during 9-11, and I actually uh, decided to go back to school shortly after 9-11 because I just said, you know, anything can happen at any time, and maybe I won't postpone this decision any longer. And that was right around when I really got serious about going back to grad school was, mm. was, after, was after 9-11. So that, that was... Uh, that was and still is something that I think I'll, it put pressure on me in terms of just realizing that I don't have unlimited time to do the things I want to do. But I think it changed everyone, whether you were here or not. Going backwards a little bit in the conversation, um, thinking about institutions, and we, you mentioned uh, the ICA. And uh, when we were at the museum school, it was one of the places you'd go. I, I remember I mentioned, I think, in my podcast, the first real show of photography I saw was the Maplethorpe mm-hmm. show that was there at the ICA and how amazing that was. And now they've got this incredible new space that I still haven't been in. I saw the building from the outside, but um, you had the opportunity to show there. What was that like being, you know, almost like coming back to Boston and having this amazing presence there, right? That was incredible. And I still don't know how that happened, actually, because it was 2009 when I had that show. I'd only been really showing for a couple of years. And a young curator named Jen Mergel had, um, she, I think, had not been at the ICA for very long when she curated that show. But she had seen my work at Miguel's booth, I think, in an art fair and got interested in it. And so she gave me one of these momentum shows. That's what they call the series of shows where they show emerging artists who don't have institutional careers. Mm. But I had, it's a good sized gallery at the ICA in the new building where you can show. And it was just so exciting for me to do a show in Boston. And again, at that institution that had been so meaningful to me because I also saw the Maplethorpe show and Maplethorpe remains someone, you know, really important for me. And I saw... I saw a show that actually featured Peter Schoolworth, the painter I mentioned earlier, his work alongside the Chapman brothers. It was like a show about this new, kind of, I don't know how to put it, I wish I could remember what it was called at the ICA in the 90s, but it was about this, uh, the Chapman brothers, I don't know if you guys know their work, but they're these YBA artists who did all this work with dolls and with kind of very lifelike human figures that mm. had all these sort of sexual and horrific elements to the work. So there was a real body horror Uh, kind of work that was being made at that time in the 90s and I saw a show along those lines at the ICA so that it was a very important institution to me and when they came along and just happened to say oh it's this curator from Boston which was just so exciting to be able to be back in my hometown where maybe some of my professors might see the work that I was making and my extended family lives there so to be able to have my mother and my brothers and my cousins and all these people come out and see my work it was that was really special. You're our first conversation with someone who's really has a lot of exhibitions. Uh, we did have uh, Tom Roma on, who's got a show coming up. But this is really Tom's first commercial gallery show. Really thinking about it, because you know he shows in institutions for years and everything. You know, MoMA and uh, right. His work is out there in other ways. Yeah, right. but and the, one of the number one ways it's out there is in books. And a lot of people who go to Columbia and the photography department, we sort of walk out. If we didn't walk in, we certainly walk out thinking about photo books and publishing in books. So. Is that something you're thinking about at all? I mean, that's kind of, given that so many people have, you know, I just was with some friends who have their second book coming out, all this stuff. Is that something you're considering and going away from exhibitions and thinking about putting some of these ideas down in a book form and how that might come about? Absolutely. I mean, when I was younger, probably like you guys, looking at photography and books was how I learned about photography and and I remember discovering a book of Sigmar Polka's photographs in the museum mm-hmm. school library, and that was just so important to me. And and having that 
experience of someone's work that's structured in such a linear way. This is the way that books are laid out, even though, of course, you can start at the back or jump around in the middle. But most people accept a certain logic to the way the book is laid out. So it's a different experience, and it's something you can hold in your hands. It's something that anyone can access if they can borrow the book or buy a book that's $50. It's not like an expensive 50 by 60 artwork you know, that, that has a very small audience. So I definitely do think about books, but I've just been in the position, I've been lucky to be busy with shows the last few years that I haven't, I've been trying to work on a book for a long time, but as you guys know, it's, it's, it's a real process and it takes a lot of time. So I have a couple of books that I'm one more of an artist book that I'm working on with a young publisher here. And we're hoping that we can make a book that's more, um, that's really purely visual and an opportunity to put some of my black and white work down on paper. And then I'm trying to do something that's a little bit more like a catalog, not of my you know, last 10 years, but maybe just the last couple of years with another small publisher. But these conversations have been going on for two years and I'm no closer to actually having a physical book, but I'm hoping to have that because I really feel like that's like, that's where photography students will see my work. That's where, you know, people who don't go to galleries will see my work. And that's important to me that, that it's accessible in that way. And you mentioned you are teaching. I am. Yeah. Where are you teaching? I teach mostly at Bard College. I've been teaching there for several years. So I teach in the MFA program in the summers. And uh, I was chair of that program for two summers with Zoe Leonard. And I've been part of the department since 2010, I guess. That was the first summer I went up there. Maybe it was 2009. I have to, I would have to look that up. But I've done visiting stints at a lot of other schools. And I used to do Monday night visits at Columbia. And I taught a couple undergrad classes at Columbia. And, and then... You know, I'm going to lecture at UC Davis later this year, and I'll be doing studio visits there, and I've done them at Pratt and SVA, and so I, it's uh, it's great. I mean, mostly I work with grad students, and I have to say I'm really hoping to work with undergrads more because I find that conversation is totally different, and in terms of just thinking about like the bones and the structure of photography, that's a place where you really get to get to work out your, your, your thoughts on that subject and you get challenged about a lot of things. Like people say, how do I know this is art or how do I know this is good? Or yeah, it's always good to be faced with those, uh, those very basic questions that you start taking for granted. Absolutely. And you hear yourself say things that you didn't even know you thought. (laughs) Yeah. I find that when the undergrad conversations are much more about, as you said, like the bones of what you think about the medium and how you can express yourself in it. And a lot of times the conversations with the grad students, it's more that you're entering their world of how they're thinking about it and you're trying to find ways to push and expand the way they're doing their own work, right? As opposed to, you don't want to come in as a totalitarian totalitarian voice and say, you know, this is bullshit, you should be doing this other thing, why are you even bothering? You know, you wouldn't do that. So it's a very different experience. At least I wouldn't, maybe you would. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't. But there are people who want that for some reason. Yeah, if you don't, if sure. You, if you don't abuse them a little bit, they feel like, you know, somehow they're yeah, not that you, getting that your money's worth back. or something. Yeah, but yeah. no, uh, I, I enjoy teaching a lot. And I think part of the reason I continue to do it, even though I usually think that I can't manage it with family, you know, I have two kids and with my work, but it really is a place where I continue to be idealistic about art. When you're at a place like Bard or you're doing studio visits at Columbia, then it's a different kind of conversation and it's such a challenging one. I'm still learning so much from teaching. I still get nervous when I go to do, you know, one of those blitzkrieg visits where you see 20 people in (laughs) six hours because I know it's going to be hard to walk into someone's studio and and to really digest and respond to what they're doing very quickly and to take them seriously, which is something I feel 
very, you know, I feel like it's my, it's my duty to really take them seriously and to, and to be as, as helpful as I can. And so that is, uh, that's something that I'm still working out. I don't, I still don't know what kind of teacher I am exactly. And it changes, it changes, but I learn so much. I really believe that as teachers, we get as much out of that, you know, exchange with the students as, as they get out of it. And hopefully we don't get more. But. No, no, absolutely. It's, yeah, yeah. It, it, it so helps you uh, stay in the, this kind of frame of mind where you're just thinking about photography and you're, and you're thinking about how to talk about photography. And. and I feel like I noticed, too, that you we're always working out our own problems through other people's work. I mean, you try not to be narcissistic about your approach to these other visits, but the things that come up, the things that you're the most attentive to are sometimes the things that, that you're also struggling with yourself. So there's like a, a, a kind of, it's just incredibly helpful and therapeutic in a lot of ways. And I do think it's helpful for the students to talk to people who are actively making things. So that's a place where you can really connect. Absolutely. Did we mention what, so when, uh, how soon is the next show coming up? It's going to be around Valentine's Day. The date hasn't been set exactly, but the show at Miguel will be in at Miguel Brew will be in February, and then this other show I'm doing in Bergen in Norway that'll be in January. Can can I get on the list? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'd be happy to get you on the list. There's plenty of room in the gallery for everyone. Please, yeah. please come, Michael. And I'm people, gonna, I'm gonna bring inline skates. <laughs> bring inline skates and bring some friends because. Uh, I'm not sure I have enough friends to fill to fill the gallery. That's a major. If you have a full class of fifty students, oh, I, I, or would, so, I, would, I would definitely please, bring a class. Please bring oh, them yeah. as well. Yeah, I know right. that's like your biggest fear on opening night is right. that there's two people standing there. Mm. So, well, this has been a fantastic conversation, and thank, uh, you. thank you for for making this time. Thank you, thank you for talking yeah. to me. All right, all right. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. <laughs> it's fun. You guys are tough. <laughs> <laughs>